Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Future Perfect Talks. Uh, the Future Perfect Talks are a um, decreasingly unprofessional attempt to um, share conversations around the themes of architecture, technology, sustainability, and the new value concepts driving the built environment. Part, part of it is to make sure people understand what the last meter model that Base 2 is developing is and how uh, design for services or design for kind of dynamic program is, is influencing the built sector and design sector. Um, today we have uh, three of the world leaders in digital design um, from three of the most important, interesting practices in the world. Uh, Mark Sitchi, I think your name is from HOK, Sharjah Bhushan from Zaha Hadid, and Jonas Rinberia from White Architects. Um, what I'll ask you to do is to introduce yourself um, briefly and your and your background, and then we can kind of jump into the into the rest of the conversation. Maybe maybe start with you, um, Sharjah. Sure. Um, thanks a lot for the invitation, John, and, and uh, also hello to Jonas and Mark. Um, myself, uh, I, I've been working as Zahadid Architects uh, for close to 14 years now. Uh, I started, uh, co-founded the, the co Computation and Design uh, Research Group, um, and the team itself has a broad mandate uh, to operate in the intersection of all things computational and design. Um, in that, I also teach at the Architectural Association. I'm doing my PhD at the ETH in Zurich. Great, Mark. Uh, thanks very much for having me, uh, John, and uh, my fellow, I guess, presenters or co cooperators, we'll call it. Um, my name is Mark Sichi, so I am uh, Director of Design Technology at HOK. I've been uh, in the profession for now, I guess, 22 years almost. It'll be this year. Uh, also teaching in academia, uh, similar to Chage. Um I've um, taught at various academic institutions, um, workshops and, and studio courses throughout the world, um, at, like over at MIT and actually at, in the AA at one point as well, but mostly in Canada. Um, and uh, I, over the course of my career, I've kind of lent, uh, merged together kind of technical expertise with the confluence and understanding of like digital fabrication and uh, how that all gets applied to designing better buildings and spaces. Great. Thank you, Jonas. Yes. Uh, uh, great to be here. Thank you, John, for the invitation. And uh, uh, very great to be in this context with, with uh, Shea and Mark. Um, I uh, there, there are certainly overlaps and similarities. I since uh, a bit over ten years, I've been leading a, a specialist team at White Architecture um, that we call DSearch, uh, very much founded in computational design, basically uh, supporting projects, leading certain projects uh, in general. And I think we have two branches. One is is kind of the, the the special scenario uh, when when things are not according to standard uh, procedures, uh, but on the other hand, we also work uh, quite a bit with spreading knowledge and competence throughout the firm and kind of a general upgrade of uh, competence in this field. I also share uh, my time with academia. I have a PhD from 
the KTH in Stockholm, and I'm currently uh, a, um, a professor at Chalmers in Gothenburg. Been teaching actually a little bit at the ETH long time ago. I did a year at the AEA as well, uh, and general kind of broadly. Uh, uh, trying to keep us engaged internationally as well. Thank you. Great. Um, so let's start by kind of taking a, taking a, a zoom out. I mean, pr previous episodes in this, um, in this series have basically jumped straight into sort of specific themes within computational design and digital design. But let's kind of zoom out as far as we can and share your um, thoughts on on basically the history of digital design as it relates to architectural practices right what 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 has been the progression of digital design technologies into um architectural practice particularly larger offices where did it start what have been the kind of the main demarcations and 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 we'll kind of you know wind up with roughly where we are today where we can carry on from maybe, maybe start with you mark how how has it progressed doesn't necessarily mean specifically hk but how, how have you how have you observed Digital, digital practices evolve into the profession? Uh, well, it's had an exceptionally long trajectory, actually. It's kind of funny you should ask that question, especially, uh, I don't know if any of the others on this call actually listened in on, uh, this is a timely subject matter in question, John, given uh, the uh, series of presentations just occurred uh, to honor uh, Chuck Eastman. Um, and this topic was actually raised there and I guess the whole conference was really about that but I would say that you know if we go back to say some of the investigations in late 70s early 80s where the concept of you know computation in design was um, as simple as finding a way to digitize uh, and mathematically plot design right in a sense like uh, and I'm not just saying like CAD drawings like that's one way of doing it, but finding a way to kind of automate the creation of, of, a, of design intent. Um, I would say that that would go as far back as kind of the inception of that, but really it's been within the last, I don't know, I want to say maybe decade and a half. So like the last 15 years that things have kind of ramped up exceptionally, right? You've got obviously the period, and I hate to keep making, um, you know, North American centric references here, um, but, you know, if you, if you speak a little bit about uh, what, where Gary uh, kind of started to bring things like Katia into the equation, which was just kind of the digitization of something that was developed in an analog way, right, sculpturally, um, I would say that maybe that was kind of like the first confluence of when this all arose and then the interests surrounding and tools developing around that, obviously, like Katia, which was used quite extensively in that process is not exactly an accessible tool for all means, which is why you get, you know, the creation of things like Rhino and Grasshopper. But these are the things that democratized, let's say, the space and allowed people to kind of explore um, kind of the very vast possibility of like mathematically derived and computationally driven solutions uh, in the space. What would you say drove that, that transformation to more um, accessible tools? Well, I would, I would, I would say that, um, you know, obviously it kind of initially, I, I, I think, um, was, uh, instigated, you know, in academia, um, to be honest initially. Right. Um, but then, you know, um, I, I would say that it was probably 
you know, explorations. It, this all started with like you know, media and arts and entertainment tools, right? So things like 3D Studio Max when like Greg Lynn was doing studies and let's say, you know, firms like Asymptote Architects that were using like Soft Image and things like that. These were like, and, and Maya, right? Still plays a very, to a high degree, people are still using these things today, right? This was like, formal, formal questions, right? We were in guess, investigating form, being more creative, going outside of our, and when I'm saying our, I mean like architects and designers in general, we're investigating areas we hadn't been before formally, right? And so we wanted new tools to be able to explore those things. And then as, as we became, you know, better at these things, we started to rationalize these things more. And so we needed things that added in, and constrain these things with metrics, right? Which is kind of what Grasshopper does. It's like, you build a system of rules to be able to understand a design concept, fundamentally build and design uh, a concept, a structure, a concept. Um, you know, that's more than just formal shape driven design, right? It's, it's rationalization as well. So I think mm -hmm. that's kind of what stimulated that. How, how would you summarize, uh, Shajay, the, the sort of historical progression of digital tools into architectural and built, built design practice? Yeah, I think like a similar thread, uh, let's say, you know, Mark kind of picked up on the thread uh, starting from Chuck Eastman and maybe Ivan Sutherland and so on. Uh, like for me, like one of the threads that I've been um, super curious and the thread that brought me into the domain is, uh, you know, the pre-computer history of, of uh, computation in a way that like, uh, starting with the Gaudis and the stereotomy uh, uh, practices of uh, French masonry and carpentry uh, leading to further into, uh, you know, Frey Otto and, and, and the Stuttgart um, ELEC lightweight structures uh, and then further to, to Bureau Happold, people like Chris Williams in the University of Bath, like, you know, the rarefied atmosphere in in early uh, turn of the millennium uh, activities, let's say in in London, and uh, and that then also then in early 2010 uh, practices like AKT and and Foster uh, Foster and partners like you know like uh, specifically the specialist modeling group etc. Um, and which has now uh, blossomed into other. Uh, advanced research uh, group etc and so that's um that's one one topic like about geometry and form finding etc which goes hand in hand with like the other exploratory aspects of formalisms that like mark mentioned that firms like zadid or uh, jesse riser and uh, others were uh, engaged in so there was like a rich uh, debate and and dialogue between these two kinds of uh, one exploratory design research and the other more scientific uh, engineering grounded and manufacturing and fabrication grounded uh, uh, threads which co-evolved and like I think now we can see that kind of confluence happening in in places like ETH where I'm doing my PhD or in Stuttgart uh, again, this is a very Eurocentric uh, thread, um, but yeah, I think uh, so. Like, yeah, that that would be like the kind of broad stroke uh, history that 
that I, I, that gets me interested and or got me interested and and that thread also now touches computer graphics um, and a lot of computer graphics people are entering this domain of so-called architectural geometry uh, mathematicians um, etc so yeah that I would say that that that's that's the kind of history that I've been following for a while. Jonas, do you have a, a sense of the of the sort of historical progression? I think I mean to me, uh, what's very striking is that there are so many of them. Uh, I I often talk about different trajectories, uh, and you can sort of have a a simpler view or a more in depth view of that. Um, but I think, as, as mentioned before, um, one of those trajectories is, is, is kind of the exploration of form, uh, maybe to a certain extent originating as in, uh, at Columbia University with the paperless studios in the early 90s, Greg Lynn and others, where, where the projects were, you know, of course, um, Exploring technology, but maybe the design part was, I would say, more discursive or trying to, to push something, uh, but uh, not really applied. But another, uh, maybe not mentioned then, uh, track is, of course, the development around computational programming and code in, in, in the UK. Uh, John Fraser, Paul Coates, and others, uh, and this sort of environment that... Uh, came to be quite important at the University of East London. Um, it's, it's also interesting to mention, I think. And I think uh, this relation between design and, and technology here is, um, uh, is quite interesting. Sorry. I was, I was gonna, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I was going to say that I think that's a perfect parallel to draw there, uh, uh, Jonas, because, you know, of course, there's there's architectural design, um, we'll call it AEC, let's, let's call it. Uh, but obviously there are other, uh, there were other areas where people were playing in design that were collaborating with these individuals, right? So, you know, like John Maida is one that I think comes to mind, right? When you're talking about the implications of code and even graphic design. Um, these were like, I think the takeaway is that like what stimulated and what spawned it was the creative pursuit of like form driven making because we were just, you know, I don't want to say messing around, but it was, we were exploring something new, but it ultimately came down to rationalizing what that was. And now we're kind of in a realm where, you know, we were able to conceive of, we're able to rationalize. And now we're saying, how do we build? Right. So uh, for a number of reasons in North America, it may be driven by cost in Europe. It may just be driven by sheer mechanics um, and and just the uh, complexity of, of engineering and developing new things, right? Um, but I think you know that it started there, and now we're getting into a much more robust and seasoned version and application of all of these amazing technologies. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. <laughs> I mean, I, I I I agree, of course. But I I think one thing that's quite important also um, is this. Uh, these different communities that grew up uh, and, and developed and emerged from maybe around 2003 and so on, based, of course, related to software and their development of generative components was an important part there, and then later, later Grasshopper and so on. I think 
slightly different from before. There's been a new kind of sharing, uh, often starting in, in academia, but certainly continuing. And I guess many of us have been to events and other things where at, probably at the same time where we can see the signs of this, the signs of this. Um, and this is actually something that I think is of particular relevance. So, so it's kind of beyond the borders of, well, UK, US, Europe-centric and beyond the borders of practices, uh, which uh, to me is, is quite uh, relevant and not necessarily under the guise of research only, but actually another kind of sharing. So I think this uh, cannot be really underestimated uh, as a main reason why there are uh, a lot of uh, a lot of competence now in the uh, in, in practice all around the world. And, and the threads that tie those together, like smart geometry, uh, as well, right? These are organizations that yep. you know grew out of the development of things like GC. Um, and have helped kind of stimulate the growth and the coordination across the world, right? Not exactly to your point, not limited to like, you know, your, uh, Europe or North America or Asia or what have you. Yeah, exactly. So, a couple of questions to kind of to kind of follow up on that. So, do you do you think that there is underlying all the kind of evolving technologies in the digital design space? Is there essentially a kind of um, quiet tug of war between? between emphasizing the aesthetic um, and uh, kind of form-giving dimension and emphasizing the engineering and the form-finding dimension. I mean, is that essentially what's going on is that there's a kind of quiet fight behind the scenes as to what these tools are for, or is that oversimplifying? I would say it's oversimplifying. It would be my opinion. I think um, the benefit of these tools is that you can you can shape them to solve any problem you have. Like for instance, you know, it may be a formal derivative, it may be manufacturing. I may be doing something as simple as trying to perform or automate a fit out of say twenty stories uh, in a building I'm designing. Um, I could be trying to assess the envelope performance like these are all computationally driven things i don't and they can all be used interchangeably like one can be linked to and connected to uh, computationally drive another aspect of any of those item elements i just discussed i don't think there's a tug of war i think there may have been at one point a tug of war i think now it's a there's much more of a symbiosis uh between all of these activities uh, that is occurring and we're now becoming in an age of like par I'll, I'll call it parallel computation where we're able to like use the output and input of these various tasks to help drive others and work in parallel as teams to help solve these issues so i i, I would actually say no there's probably isn't but that's just my opinion i don't know how uh Shadri and Jonas feel about that yeah i agree that uh you know that there was a interesting um uh, paper about like the history of uh, architects and engineers uh, uh, through the lens of like the RIBA and the corresponding Royal uh, Institute of Engineers. Uh, apparently they were both initiated by the same person uh, who happened to be both an architect and a, a, a bridge builder in that sense. Uh, so like they, they, you know, what's interesting is that like it seems to be always oscillating between convergence and divergence uh, since since that time um, where uh, 
like in in the 19th century or so like the french <clears throat> engineering like because of new mathematics and new materials suddenly uh, engineering diverged from architecture in a way that like the source syllabus became different uh, so engineers uh, bifurcated to learn more about the mathematics uh, particularly the numerical calculations uh, prior to that like the the core syllabus was the same like whether you were architect or engineer and and like i think like uh, that divergence like which was further amplified by you know industrialization and so on like where architects and engineers clearly uh, had to occupy different realms of the uh, profession um, and and also different legal liabilities etc uh, but with the with the increasing availability of computational resources and learning material and and so on like uh, and also comfort uh, I, I believe like or i can kind of visually see also that th there is at least in the early stages of design there is a return to a more collaborative cumulative uh, 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 progress like which is which is uh, kind of uh, good good to see that like you know like in the 80s or so like there was clearly a, a tendency not to build upon other people's work uh at, in the architectural circles and uh so now that that is also now uh kind of beginning to fade because there is a common language of uh, computational mm. programming and computational resources and and also um it, it gives each other uh like at least some way to communicate like design intent on the one hand uh and 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 also understand the constraints and and the performance behaviors of of shape and uh, or other constraints it could be like as mark said fit out or like cost even and increasingly sustainability constraints uh etc so yeah so i i think like it's useful to think about it as like these two poles like may, may, maybe that's not what actually is happening but just to uh you could cast it in 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 retrospect uh, see it as these kind of uh sometimes divergent pathways and sometimes convergent um allowing us as a discipline together like to to cover more territory mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so let me ask a, a related question. So, so if that question is, to to what extent is there a you know an, a, a co-evolution or or a split between engineering-oriented computation and design and sort of design and creativity-oriented computation? Let me ask you a kind of related question, um, which in the end will combine with that. Um, is there a convergence of all the different technologies onto one? sort of you know evolved tool set that doesn't necessarily mean like one product but one kind of highly integrated tool set or is it going to be disparate tools for different things and, and underlying that question is the word bim right because part of this storyline coming out of people that promote bim particularly out of autodesk um that you know has is kind of leading in the sales of bim there is a narrative which is yes all the tools for architectural design and computation and um and, optima and engineering are going to converge is that or is that not true right will tools converge or are they not going to converge no i i don't know who wants to, I, I i just this one's juicy and i kind of want to i kind of want to respond but then i really want to hear what uh Shaji and Jonas also have to say about this because um i think and sorry to step in right off the bat, guys, but 
I think um, I think the answer is there probably won't be a convergence, let's say, to like a very specific tool. I think there's been a bit of a divergence actually in, in recent recent memory or, or history in that, um, I mean, like I would say, uh, speaking from the perspective of an architect, and we also have engineers, mechanical and structural as well on staff. Um, and I love the collaborative nature of that cohesion and, and sometimes friction. But I think what happens is that we use the tool that we need for the job. And sometimes that means creating our own tools. So to use a platform that would be restrictive would stifle the innovation or our capacity to try and elevate our, our work in a sense to a new degree and try new things. So for instance, you know, like things like um, you'll see, like there's kind of this push to the cloud, obviously. I think what, what will likely happen is that, um, you know, it won't be so much as that, but it'll be a way to offload compute. So we'll still be able to kind of develop our own tools, but that kind of necessity to wait on things is going to change because the compute may be done somewhere else, but we still have that flexibility to be able to develop the infrastructure we need in order to solve the challenges that we have before us, rather than being shoehorned into something that is quite constrained and restrictive. I don't know if that makes sense. I'll just start it off there. I want to see where you guys go with this. So, Jonas, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, might, I know of those ambitions, of course, and we are being courted. We're probably all being courted by that mentioned actor. Um, but I think uh, that line of, of development comes from a certain perspective, which, which builds on previous development in BIM and CAD and all of this. I think what's important to point out that there are so many different perspectives and drivers uh, that have been guiding people here. So uh, in terms of, you could of course argue from, from a perspective of a certain kind of efficiency for this sort of tool-based thinking and, and gathering everything. But I think what we see among architects is, and the reason that we're where we're at now is that people have been exploring new venues constantly. So uh, I believe strongly that this will continue um, in different ways. And it's it's not sort of a, a linear di direction uh, or development for a specific certain goal. We don't know what, that, what those goals are. And we still see today new, uh, well, new kinds of software from other industries still seeping in. Uh, and one important thing for me to, to be in academia is to teach with students, of course. Yeah. Um, and there's suddenly uh, what, what the students are doing and their interest is, is also another kind of emerging culture and it's it can change rapidly <laughs> and unexpectedly uh, as this sort of for instance the post-digital notion um, and other things um, what, what, what is that what is the post-digital notion well there are many ways of, of, of describing that one would be that everything is already infused sort of with the digital so there's no point in making a point of it um, mm -hmm. but the other is actually looking back uh, from a design perspective and you look for your references in a pre-digital era uh, and that affects the way you represent the work and everything i mean you still work with computers you still use all the software but it doesn't look like it uh etc so many things can happen and i think arch architecture is 
kind of dependent on 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 that that there can be multi influences and so on. Uh, I mean, there are still sort of other extreme uh, directions towards efficiency and optimacy in uh, and automation of design that we see, of course. But uh, I think uh, design is richer than that, uh, and we we uh, so I I, I think it's. Um, we need that ecosystem of thinking in, in, in both in terms of ideas uh, and tools and methods, uh, et cetera. I just want to add one thing to that. Sorry, uh, before Shadjay jumps in is, um, is that I think I 100% agree with you, Jonas. I think the power of some of these tools is that we can automate the aspects of the work that is not creative, that is mechanical, that arguably we shouldn't be wasting our time on to begin with. They're not, uh, in some cases, critical um, to the design process, which is where we should be spending most of our time and our strengths anyways. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, yeah I agree on that, of course. So, yeah, that's a, that's a question. Carry on, Shaji. Yeah, like on, <clears throat> I guess like tools like BIM and like players like Autodesk uh, or BIM's evolution, like obviously, like it may lead into more, uh, further stages of, of uh, integration, let's say. Um, I, I guess it, uh, on the one hand, like the construction industry is one of the least productive. So, so you need like some kind of vertical integration to to be able to address that. Uh, but on the other hand, like there is, uh, it's an increasing, extraordinarily fragmented and historic uh, profession and and industry, with all kinds of legal. Uh, uh, hurdles, legacy infrastructure, uh, people with silos and moats to defend, etc. So, in such a <clears throat> environment, like it is kind of clear that uh, integration is unlikely, and what is necessary to be agile is is the ability to connect up tools and hack things together uh, uh, for the specific job and and for the specific uh, market or the specific uh, economy. I can imagine like what works in chi parts of Beijing in China doesn't work in Shanghai. And like, likewise in India, what works in Southern India doesn't work in like Northern India and like so on. So, so construction industry is in that sense, like fascinating because it's both historic and contemporary. It's like also, it's almost like, you know, five, six centuries, like living together at the same time. Like, so, uh, you, you know, you, you, you can, on the one hand, use like the latest rocket science for certain things. And, and, but at the same time, some things have not changed for 200 years. So it's, um, and I don't think it like it will universally change uh, across like, but there will be segments of the industry where we will see uh, vertical integration, like particularly, let's say where there's a housing uh, crisis or need or a business opportunity, uh, uh, you know, players like Katera and others may drive change in certain segments where it is lucrative. But yeah. by and large, like I think, it uh, tools need to be agile, need to uh, to communicate, and and so that yeah. like creative solutions can be found by yeah. you know hacking together things from other industries, etc. Which is another thing like that, like architecture industry uh, or the entire construction industry traditionally has not invested in research like it's such a low low margin kind of business that 
um, investments in research don't really have not yet paid off, right? Like, and yeah. and but that's beginning to change, and so maybe uh, another source of integration might be that. Yeah, yeah I mean, so in this letter last year, this uh, it was it was not famous among anybody except for architects, and even then, maybe not that famous. But it was a, a, min- a micro scandal when a bunch of officers, including yours, Shaijie, uh, wrote a letter to. Autodesk saying we want X, Y, and Z. Basically, we want software to be better and cheaper and more aligned. And in the in the list of asks, right, um, it does list some ironically more interoperability, right? So Autodesk that claims to be doing, you know, a suite of tools that work together. Basically, they're not doing a very good job. Um, and particularly, what you know, what the letter asks for is, and that space, um, data standards. Um, and interoperability around data standards. And that's pretty interesting because I think what that leads to is, I mean, you mentioned it actually before, Shahjay, um, more, um, I mean, you didn't, you didn't say it in this way, but this is how I interpret it, that, that what, one of the things that's happening under the surface market in, in computational architecture and digital design is more um, sort of shared uh, tools and methods and data and I mean basically the, the some alignment with the way software works right the way software works is that there's is, things are highly standardized there's hot, there's extreme amounts of sharing and trust around sharing and expectation of how sharing will work for the industry and that isn't the case in architecture but I think that there is a you know a kind of softly evolving element of that um, sort of honestly informal but technical interoperability without top-down mandates, right? And I think that's very interesting to observe. Um, were you involved? Were you were you responsible for the letter, Sharjay? Do we blame you, <laughs> or was it Patrick? Uh, no, my immediate uh, boss, uh, Niels Fisher, <laughs> who's the head of uh, the technology cluster. But uh, uh, but yeah, it is interesting. Like you know, like um, interoperability is such a uh, it's an everyday uh, presence um, in, in or I guess, every every architectural practice uh, or engineering practice. Um, yeah, that uh, you know, Autodesk itself is like kind of they've gone through several acquisitions, and so like their own tools like uh, are unlikely to talk to each other because. <laughs> Yeah, because they didn't. Uh, so, um, but you know, like, but I think we also asked them, like, a, I mean, that letter was like more specifically around Revit, but uh, it's it wasn't so much interoperability. It was that, like, you know, like Re- the features of Revit have not evolved for a while, and um, but like, I think interoperability is an interesting question, and like, we tend to look. Uh, in our practice to towards the uh, animation industry the movie industry because uh, it is equally uh, a, a divergent set of skills that go into making a movie from creative directors to to technical PhDs in like you know lighting mathematics and like so on and and then um, there's like a complex tool chain from like clay modeling all the way to rendering and lighting and and typically they're like maybe an entire movie has 300 people or so working. And, and so we are like, uh, uh, you know, quite keen and have been following the progress of this universal scene description and like the mm-hmm. NVIDIA Omniverse and like these kind of 
collaborative uh, interoperability ecosystems, right? Like that, which is clearly coming from that uh, that industry, and um, which which is not prescriptive the way Autodesk wants it to be. It's not like siloed away. It it is. Um, different sets of tools like engineering tools and design tools like just talking to each other through a common streaming format and and which i think is great like uh it's just a natural extension of like text-based formats that like most hack jobs like uh use right like you, you want to hack things together you are obviously exporting some kind of text or streaming text and and so the USD format uh, and also the DataSmith format like I think are two things that we are like keenly following and like where that will lead to because uh, it enables like uh, connectivity between platforms without it ever needing to belong to the same supplier or same vendor. I, was, uh, I think I, that yeah. Sorry, I was just going to jump in on that, uh, Shajay, because I think. I was going to say that, I mean, that's a, that's a, a major uh, consideration that we take when we evaluate things like that is like USD is a big one. That's like, it's a game changer. It's massive. It's a shell of a file format that you can attach data to as it's required, um, you know, at an endpoint, right. Which is massive. Um, the thing is um, also it's not, and again, Omniverse is also another really amazing potential toolkit for AEC. Um, but I think one of the biggest kind of considerations and one of the things that actually makes me most happiest is kind of the kind of, I don't want to say like sharing economy, but the economy that's popping around up around open source, right? So, you know, um, as architects and like, you know, fellow colleagues, like everyone on this call in the profession as a whole, is, you know, like we should be doing our best to support open standards and initiatives as much as we can, because, um, you know, um, we, we are the market, right? So we, we have the capacity, the capability to kind of like, even if we wanted to at some point form our own open standard to a degree, which may seem like wishful and, and you know, uh, crazy thinking, um, but to, to work with technologies that are uh, open to a degree and customizable because, you know, like vendor lock-in is like a potential real problem um, for us. If you think from a long-term, um, let's not even say like from the perspective of litigation, but just like in general, um, being able to access your content as things move through history, right? Like we've all been through those cycles of like can move forward, but cannot move backward. But if we had data formats where, okay, fine, moving backward, let's say you didn't have certain features or fundamental elements wouldn't show up, but you could still read that data um, to a certain degree would be a massive benefit. Like there's, this is again, part of some of the risk, I guess we absorb too, is that, and really we have like no control over the ecosystem once we're locked into a state where, you know, like tomorrow they could decide to make the price 300%, right? And of course, I mean, we saw that that was problematic, um, which is kind of, you know, what's kind of been happening over the course of the last decade or so is that, you know, the price goes up, but the the capacity doesn't. Um, so anyway, I just, I just wanted to like add in that, I think to evaluate things based on openness and then treating each other more as collaborators as a, in some degrees as opposed to competitors 
um, is also a, maybe a different way to look at things as well. Yeah, I mean, just to, just to, I, I, there's a couple of things I have to un, un, unpick there, partly for for commercial reasons. I mean, one of this, the sponsor of, of of this season of of the Future Perfect Talks is Unreal Engine. It was Epic Games, right. and uh, I have to, to to do a shout out just here for for Unreal Engine as a as a vehicle for USD, right? I mean, um, so Nvidia Omniverse is obviously an alternative, but I mean, I think that I mean one of the reasons I want you know I'm happy to work with Epic Games and I want to kind of talk about Unreal Engine. Is it is by far the most powerful um, real-time renderer for um, real-time renderer on the market, right? It's why high-end architecture uses it as, as opposed to comp competing products. But I think I mean, the, the key point I think you're making, which is very interesting, and this is how you came into it, Shaji, is that what has emerged, which ends up being deployed in Unreal Engine and other environments, is you know the universal scene description, which came out of came out of Pixar. And that's kind of where I was taking this question, kind of gently, which is. Well, I was going to ask after, is there a convergence around BIM? Is is another convergence going to happen? And that's kind of where I think this conversation has ended up because where I think, um, I'm not, you know, so this now will show you the extent to which I myself am making recommendations to 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 Epic, which may not be absorbed in any way. Um, I think they need to 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 jump on the opportunity to to evolve a tool set that the current tool providers aren't providing, right? USD wouldn't be a thing in the AEC, in the architecture uh, space were it not that there's a giant gap there, right? And it speaks to what you're, you're addressing, uh, Mark, which is a new way of doing collaboration, all right? It's not just you know, file compatibility. It's that these standards evolve themselves as an industry collaboration, right? So, you know, one of the things that's relevant, that, that's relevant in some parts of this conversation are in um just you know i mean more of kind of humble file formats let's take like gltf right mm -hmm. um and, and and gltf is a file format that is you know is optimal for a tool that's becoming very you know i think uh popular and um uh, respected in the space which is hyper you know the guys that um that came out of dynamo um that built dynamo basically as far as i know um and left autodesk have created a new you know, software platform web-based for design interaction and design optimization, and GLTF is their virtualization format. And GLTF is an industry is a is a shared industry standard, right? So it's not a commercial lock-in itself. And so I think that you know there is sort of convergence on a number of levels. One is on tools that can do lots of things, and themselves are highly extensible. And I and I do think that one of the reasons why Unreal Engine is going to be very interesting. And ironically, I think that the sort of gentlemanly uncertainty about exactly what is going on with Unreal Engine in the AC space, I think it's unfolding for them as a company. That openness, I think, will ultimately play in their favor. And I think that new kind of workflows will evolve around the openness of that platform, but also separately from the tool set, then the, you know, the, the, um, the file, the, the file, not just the file format, but the, the, the file structure, right? How and the collaboration around um, uh, file formats and file structure is going to be very interesting. I think, that, for example, that's one of the struggles with um, uh, with um, IFC, right? IFC industry foundation classes. I mean, I'm, I'm permanently trying to kind of sorry, just clarify things also for audience members that may not know all of this stuff. But IFC is the current interoperability baseline standard for architecture and it just isn't, isn't that good right doesn't play particularly well with any of the tools um so that's me sort of cleaning up the conversation a little bit and adding a few little extra bits in there 
Well, I want to, I want to actually, John, so just to that point, I, I, like full disclosure, like I didn't want to come across as supporting one technology over the other. I mean, we evaluate all of these. I am myself uh, a recipient of multiple mega grants, right? Um, and yeah, there are platforms out there that do this. There are open platforms. So like if you want to just talk about uh, the basic fundamentals of shipping data from one, from say one endpoint to another, like a sender receiver, you know, there's Speckle and I'm sure everybody on this call is probably using that right now, right? It's, yeah. it's completely wide open. You can install it, set it up on your own server. Um, you know, part of that actually, part of my work with the mega grant was actually getting Speckle to work with UE so that you could send stuff live stream from, uh, say Rhino, Grasshopper, Dynamo, and Revit combined, right, into UE and have that harmonize and run visualizations and what have you. Um, I think the part of that is, is that all of that work is free, right? Nobody's locking that down. And by no means is it the answer. And, you know, like as a part-time gig, it's probably done like half, not even half as good as like what both Shaja and Jonas may be capable of, right? So, I mean, you know, like take that with a grain of salt. But I mean, I think the point here is is that and what i was trying to make is that you know like epic have done really everyone kind of a solid from a from a certain perspective in that you know it's free to use that application right so if you want to run real-time architectural viz to analyze or convey design intent uh, or what have you concepts you can do that right with without costing a dime and and i think one of the really positive notes to take away from that is like, let's say even if they charge for the platform and you had to pay for uh, UE, you would still have the facilities and the development that's going into generating free plugins to be able to make it possible to bring your content in to do so. And I think those are kind of the things like your comment about IFC, absolutely. Um, I would say, you know, it's probably... Uh, we could all agree maybe on this call that that, that is not a success. Um, and so that's why people are looking to USD because there's significantly more promise, I guess, there. Um, yeah. But it's really, it's the infrastructure around, um, and Epic is like obviously leading the way with a lot of the stuff that they're doing. Uh, but it's it's the concept of giving that stuff uh, up because there are other, other elements, uh, and other areas to make money on in order to make that possible. Right. So, uh, but, but at, at the heart of all of that is actually really valuing, um, the industry that these things are being made for. Right. I think one of maybe the biggest difficulties we have is kind of like AEC is really kind of feeling misunderstood to a certain degree. Um, I, I mean, like that's a tough one to unpack, but I think, it's difficult because, you know, like anything, you know, driven by capitalism, you want to develop content for the thing that allows you to continuously develop something, right? So if you're not making enough money, then you obviously can't continue to do that. Um, but I think that um, there's a fine line and kind of a lack of attention that in general has been given um, to the professional side of the equation where they kind of hear us, but they're not listening, I guess is the best way to put it, where um, has, has, has led to a number of firms like uh, Shadja, yours included, where you develop your own software to come up with these problems. Like you mentioned GLTF, we absolutely use that in some of our own custom coded platforms to be able to present uh, content via web, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Because it's an open standard. So I think there's a lot 
like that's a that's a big one to unpack but those are just mm -hmm. kind of some of the comments i had on that one Jonas, mm -hmm. do you have a sense of that in terms of in terms of totally um exogenous actors i mean currently exogenous actors like um epic games coming into the architecture engineering construction space and and offering a new kind of i, I don't want to say tool because it's more like working environment um in which to develop you know digital design yeah, i mean i think uh, we we obviously also look at that and and have sort of active development and and this is uh, certain key decisions being made and so on but i want to step take one step back i mean i see uh, obviously comes from uh, the perspective of of bim uh, which to me originated in in sort of setting standards for how a building is documented not how it is designed at all uh, but how it's documented and and uh, i i think this this perspective on on these standards or 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 um, whatever path you choose also is is kind of influenced on where it comes from mm. uh, so i think that's i'm not sure if that's the reason that ifc is not successful because of course there's a lot of work still going on and and uh, buildings needs to be documented but uh, i always felt like uh, the software developed for that Revit, other software has not fully taken into account how ideas are formed our architecture is formed from the beginning so i think that's mm. that's a missing part for me and then to me, uh, platforms such as Baku, uh, which originated in an architectural research project, uh, is important because it just looks across the field and, and tries to connect to these different environments where where uh, people choose to design. And I mean, we mentioned Rhino, Grasshopper before, I may mean, go back 20 years, maybe no one expected that Rhino would be uh, such a preferred tool, which is present at most firms. Uh, I mean, it's not aimed for architecture from the beginning. Then Grasshopper, of course, is, is developed and invented uh, by an architect, but it starts to address us uh, uh, to certain extent, mm. I feel. And I think mm. that's in, that's an important point. Um, mm. And can I admit that uh, in my own thinking, I'm not that um, far ahead with how to take in the visualization parts here and what role that mm. it can play mm. except for communicating uh can mm. it also be a design environment i think that's an open mm. question for me i think, I think that's where i would like to kind of come in and you know um like you know the topic of epic or uh, uh suddenly becoming like potentially like a, a vehicle for uh interop uh, or USD uh, or GLTF was mentioned, and um, you know something related is like uh, the so-called MDL material description language and so on. Um, is is uh, the 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 nature like what would drive such things is uh, is uh, not incremental change, but like the the selection pressure to in architecture to reduce the gap between what is presented as well visualized early on in the project and what is delivered. So increasingly clients want what you see is what you get, right? Like that you want to reduce that gap between what is like kind of promised and what is actually given at the end. Uh, and also increasingly to, to, a, to a legal uh, legal description of that promise. 
Um, so that's where I think like Unreal is like kind of cool because like the, it is photoreal to, to the extent that it's possible. And, and, and if we can like then latch on to that, this idea of storing only the information and, uh, as needed for manufacturing, right? Like, so the, I, I believe like one of the difficulties with IFC and like more general formats is that they're focused on uh, being general, right? Like they're focused on being uh, descriptors of geometry alone, like, and it needs to support a wide variety of downstream um, processes. So that that then amplifies like a, a ton of um, specifications and like so on. Uh, whereas if you focus on like building um, uh, like you know visualizers uh, to uh, final production, let's say of timber, uh, then you may realize that like you don't need like all of the things that is in IFC. Like you you need some other things which can be built upon uh, GLTF or it can be added onto USD or it can be added onto like whatever open source open. Uh, descriptions of, of scenes and, and um, so I think like you know that that pressure from client and, and economic pressure uh, and also productivity pressure like you don't want to spend like uh, many many hours and years like to go from the first render to to the final finished product like you you want to reduce that time uh, that's where I think like the the some of the file format topics uh, are going to find their motivation and, and source mm. of uh, uh, push, mm. let's say, to, to, um, uh, to direct the efforts. Like so, and uh, whether it's Unreal or uh, NVIDIA, or it can be driven by a manufacturer who will pick up this file format. And like, uh, you know, if, if they offer that, like what you, if you can reduce that gap between what you see and what you get, uh it, it it really i think like is going to be one of the motivations or the sources of change in the industry I, I i also think that one of those things is that like you know when i think of like something like ue or um what have you i think of that as like like the equivalent of what node.js may be to like web development right like it's uh it's like a platform or, or like not even a toolkit, but it's like a shell for you to be creative with. And I think the most important thing is, is like, you know, what, I mean, what we're striving for is like an environment that we can play within, that we can make stuff um, for, for whatever application we're, we're needing to make it for. So like, for instance, you know, um, I mean, to Jonas's point, right? Like, it, you know, like using UE, it's not just about, you know, uh, sexy graphics or real-time visualization. Um, you know, you can do, you know, you can essentially, it's like it, you, whether you're like using blueprints, whatever, but it's the concept of it that you can create things like your own clash detection interface. You can um, do all sorts of design. Um, you can, you can represent and explain kind of like the intent of what it is you're after, or you can evaluate and critically analyze uh, elements because it uh, something like that is flexible enough to be able to develop within your own uh, your own sort of application um, to be able to solve the problems that are that you're facing right when you're mm -hmm. developing or designing or constructing a building. 
Um, and I think that's yeah. kind of what it represents more so. Just to, just to, I mean, just to kind of again sort of make sure everyone who may be listening is up to speed. I mean, so Node.js is 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 a so-called uh, runtime environment which runs JavaScript on the on the server side as opposed to the to the browser. I mean, uh, and essentially it's a way of 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 running a server or and then and then from there running any software written in basically in JavaScript, um, usually for serving web pages. But what it's become exactly as you say is a kind of um, sort of tabula rasa just to, you know a kind of you know coding space to, to to build things quickly out of the box exactly. and have complete functional control um what, what i would say about about unreal engine and the the overall architectural issues around um architectural sort of computational architecture so so the overall sort of um fr computational framework issues around around architecture and built design is is very much extended from what you're, you're saying mark but particularly um in this issue i mean what we're building is a is a, is a platform to en enable user services so on-demand retail and experiences to plug into buildings operationally and a computation computational design to optimize buildings around services that the building will at some point support now the issue is is that none of that really sits very neatly on existing software stacks right so we run about three or four different stacks so we have our own custom um it's a node.js uh, platform um which is basically a kind of map uh, engine with a, with a bunch of data layers and then we have um you know we have a, a kind of rhino stack with one module on that is a kind of output to the web through another node.js platform and then you know we're trying to kind of converge onto tools like um you know hyper but at the end of the day it's it's a shit show and so and so one of the interesting options and i'm you know Jonas, I'll sh just full transparency Jonas's company owns a tiny piece of my company and Jonas um and i are collaborating technically uh, relatively intensively on parts of the of the of the product um so i haven't told you this yet Jonas, but i've got a proposal that we're, we're um developing a little bit with epic games exactly on this point which is to see if we were going to develop a much more extensible stack right so we have a set of tools that sit in one computational environment is it a good idea to try doing that in epic games if what you need is visualization um some kind of data layer i mean so so, so kind of building rendering so rent visualization of built objects some kind of data visualization layer a lot of extensibility a lot of kind of you know modularity in terms of um and extensibility in terms of how you view how you present is it is that just a useful tooling set? And so this is kind of a real-time example of, of um, a real-world example of trying to find the right pathway for tool building because our view is that more and more built design will need to include the activated program layer. And whether it's just visualizing how it is as it happens, or it's you know actually designing or, or coding the operations of designing designing it spatially or as it were coding and managing the operations of it. That doesn't really map very well to the kind of conventional tool set, right? And so it just doesn't cut it to be cranking out um, IFC files. <laughs> I mean, it just just does not feel like it's the right world. <laughs> but um, uh, could I just jump in there because I think this is also pointing towards this. Uh, we see new areas for for the development that's being done in the design phase where that has to hook up with things that were previously a completely separate layer. Uh, and I think that's, it's, it's kind of a wild west out there right now with all these different initiatives and 
and initi initiatives to build platforms that try to address that, I think. Um, but yeah. it's going to be really interesting to see where everything is at in five years. Uh, yeah. But also, I think a, a critical question from, from the perspective of, of us as architects, how can we and how do we want to influence uh, how this unfolds? Mm. I mean, I, th I think one thing, because we're just going to move on to a to a to a related question in just one second. But just to kind of park this, I, th I think that's one thing that that is sort of surfacing here, and it's useful to just to sort of, sort of say it out loud. Is that it, let's let's say there's three cultures that are encroaching on conventional AEC digital design space, and so that is um, like just a pure software development space, like software encoding. There's um, uh, you know the game industry and their um, tool set, and there is open source software, particularly in the in the built design space. Now those three things have a very specific cultural dimension in common, which is just a lot more collaboration, right? I mean, you, you mentioned Sharjah, you know the the film industry. Um, just the, the the nature of collaboration in the film industry is, I think, different from how it is in in architectural design. It's very different in and and and, this, and, this, and the software tooling is and certainly in gaming and and the software tooling is much more you know closely aligned there. Certainly in in um, in coding, pure software, and in open source software, the, the presumptions around collaboration, the culture of that is is very significant, and I think that will be one. One of the change vectors, Jonas, uh, that is sort of creeping up on everybody, which is everyone just assumes that whatever tool they're using, for whatever purpose, they will just be able to collaborate in a certain way, and it will not be it, it would not be strange or inappropriate to be reaching out to you know user groups and software libraries and tool sets that are just shared across you know across the industry at large. Right? It's not all siloed and private and you know client specific. Um, so on the culture issue, right, inside your respective offices, um, I'm going to kind of elaborate a few questions on top of this. So so whatever you say, I'll, 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 I'll extract some critical content from it. Is it the case that you are in a silo, be honest about it, or are you somehow universally integrated with the rest of the office? And in, in which case, why have a separate department for digital design? You can see I'm setting up a little bit of a you know a provocative line here, but hit shoot. Um, I can, uh, sorry, you go ahead. Go ahead. Next. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like uh, I mean, as a practice, like uh, I would say, like in, in, we are quite uh, digitally native uh, um, in in and and. Kind of always looked up to the the borrowed workflow and and tools. Um, uh, Charge Yeah. Is that is that you with the, is the siren in the background? Was it you yeah, with yeah, the siren was, in the background? Yeah, that was me. Yeah, no, yeah, I, and that's Autodesk. It's Autodesk. They're coming for you. <laughs> yeah, I live next to a hospital. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, like you know, we're digitally native and and um, and we uh, we have always borrowed tools and workflows from um, the animation and computer graphics industry. Like and alongside Rhino, like Maya is like our main workhorse. Like I would say, ninety nine percent of all design starts there. Um, so why? So our mandate is a bit broad in the in the sense that, uh, like we are not uh, in any way. 
kind of uh, specialists uh, providing tools or education or anything to to the rest of the company what we are uh, our mandate is to look like three or four years ahead of time and see where where new technologies uh, which we can kind of customize and adapt uh, and make available i mean uh, make some prototypes and provide some uh, use cases uh, and like make pavilions or establish research connections like connections with uh, manufacturing technologies that like will come about in the next few years like concrete 3d printing or uh you know robotic um timber joinery and like these kind of things and and how we can build tools specifically to make those things available in a design environment like maya or in inside of rhino so uh um uh, yeah so that, that that's how we are integrated in the in the sense that like uh we are on the one hand like the uh need to know the pressures of practice like uh, so we are a practice embedded research team on the, in that sense and then on the other hand like we also collaborate with uh, extensively with research uh, institutions uh, uh, so yeah like um, so we are not like a specialist group uh, because like a large part of our company is kind of uh, yeah naturally uh, oriented towards digital processes I'll, I'll jump. I, I, well, so hold, hold on one second. Um, so um, I didn't quite understand if that meant that you were or you were not a separate division, right? Because I, I sense that you're probably one of the officers that is most, as it were, native with high-end digital tools. And I think what you're saying, just to clarify, is that insofar as you are separate, it's because you are doing very advanced tool building and investigation. Right, but broadly speaking, the deployment of the of the of the day to day tooling is kind of diffused across the office. Yeah, that's right. There are like separate teams uh, to do that, like design technology group, and there's a beam team, and like um, you know uh, various day, like there's day to day business like which are much bigger. So we have a research group uh, of like fourteen or fifteen people like that, um, specifically. Uh, to glue together different uh, emerging technologies, like whether it's Epic or USD or, or like you know some latest uh, mathematical framework in in, the, in uh, geometry processing, uh, how we can leverage all of that and combine it with like new uh, robotic fabrication or uh, you know things like blockchain, what influence it may have in the future, etc. So the, so we are like operating two or three, four or five years ahead uh, and kind of triaging technologies, let's say. Uh, and and, and may, by the time like they become mainstream, they will already be the skill in the company to, to, mm. to diffuse that into the practice, yeah. Mm. Jonas, how is, it, how is it for you? Well, we've seen a, a shift the last couple of years. Uh, previously, it was my team and then the BIM team, you could say. Uh, and there was the we were in silos uh, in in a weird way, uh, but that's been broken up. Um, and of course, there's still development within the more conventional field of of BIM and making sure, for instance, things like when everyone started to work from home. Uh, I think the the BIM side, well, to be clear, the Revit side was one of the challenges to make everything work in ongoing projects. 
but there's a new field also where, as I mentioned initially, uh, we in in this new organization that we have, uh, th there's a, a branch that focuses on providing new tool sets to to disseminate those out into the um, company uh, and respond in response to quite general questions or primarily early stage uh, design and so on. And what's happening is that my team is still focusing on on the particular advanced commissions, but in fact, uh, people in my team are actually kind of commissioned to do that development also. So it's 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 not our main objective, uh, and I think it's also based on that we happen to have the highest competence in in, in that field, uh, which yeah. will probably. Uh, shift uh, further on, but we definitely see that uh, computation uh, starts to have a more important role in very general projects uh, and from very early stages, in particular in terms of simulation and, and things like that. But would you say so? So to kind of get more clarity on that specifically for you, would you say it's similar to? Is it is it becoming similar to what's happening with Shaji at, at, at ZHA? Is it that um, there is a digital group? And you are separate to the extent that you're doing a very advanced things and building tools for everybody else. But broadly speaking, the diffusion of, you know, competency and and sort of first move deployment of digital tools is that is that happening, or is it the case that actually people just don't know they don't know where they they're they're not really diffusing into the tools. Digital tools are not diffusing into into kind of daily practice across the office. No, it is, but I think we have a different challenge. I mean, I know that uh, you know the uh, just let's say competence in Grasshopper is broad. That's how I did uh, architects, I think, uh, and uh, with us, it's it's not that broad. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's it's more now that we have a certain team that develop. Um, well, develop scripts and toolkits that others starts to use more and more. And that, that, that's been a step in itself. Mark, how is it with the HOK? Um, I don't know. I would say like with all things with this conversation, it's somewhere in between. <laughs> um, no, I think um, with us, I would say, so we did something actually kind of interesting. Uh, I'll say a few years back where I think in, in most architecture firms, you've got uh, like an infor information technology component. And then you've got like what I'm hearing, I think you guys are referring to this as like the BIM team, right? So like the design technology, right? So those are, one is kind of commonly associated with infrastructure. The other one is commonly associated with like, you know, helping the work get done, let's call it. Uh, and then arguably you could say there's like a third arm, which is more like research, but that probably belongs within the design technology realm. So a few years back, we kind of decided to say, well, you know what, um, there are expertise on both of these teams that if fused together and under a common umbrella could probably borrow resources and cover more ground if we were to somehow find innovative ways of splitting tasks. So we actually did that. Um, we assimilated, um, you know, IT and DT, and we called that ATG, so Advanced Technology Group. And... So, so that group primarily is composed of like those individuals I was talking about, but on, on that team, they largely look out for things like, um, 
mostly procedural in nature, let's call it. Um, but also to like provide new innovative methods of, you know, doing new things. And I'm sorry that that's kind of vague, but I mean, the reason I say like things is probably in quotations is because it could be design driven. It could be documentation, you know, like contract documents. It could be, uh, fabrication based construction, you know, coordination, whatever it is. Right. Um, and so there's that aspect of it. Uh, but when it comes to like, let's say things like um, Grasshopper and Rhino, um, you know, it's not like we have a separate group that are, you know, Grasshopper, Rhino um, specialists and things like that. And then they develop software and they pass it down to the teams. We have, I mean, I think, um, as you probably all know, like we're a large enough scale firm that there are a variety of individuals with those sorts of talents everywhere throughout the firm. I'm lucky in the sense that I get to work with like really talented people on the ATG team, as well as on the ground in practice. But also in addition to that, where it's a little bit different, even for HOK right now, is that we happen to have like a very kind of unique project um, within within the office right now. And that, that project in and of itself has a dedicated team. So this comes back to kind of, I think, your original question, John, where you know, that team is actually responsible for, and it's like a wide variety of skills. I mean, like we have game developers, we have like mechanical engineers, structural engineers, architects, uh, technologists, all kinds of different areas of expertise, but it, it kind of all comes back to uh, the issue of solving the problem and kind of like what Shajay said, where he said, you know, they're concentrating on doing things, you know, five years out, like we look at the, like the half decade in the decade. So five, 10 years and where that primarily happens is in ATG, the boots on the ground there, they, 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 they somewhere in one way, shape or form have the capacity to deal with like Rhino and Grasshopper when things get exceedingly complex and it requires like extreme intervention, that's when perhaps the ATG team would maybe get involved. So I guess it's not that dissimilar, um, but just a little bit, a little bit different. Um, so, so one of the reasons why I'm, I'm asking this question, and it's partly why I kind of set up the question previously in terms of, you know, whether, what, what's the sort of status of, of the interplay between the engineering dimension of digital design tools and the aesthetic dimension of digital design tools is, is because what I'm, what I'm, what I'm wondering is, what leads or how does how how what leads what because i think if we i mean i'm, I'm, I'm speaking for on behalf of, of of you of your company Sharjah, for a second but you obviously you're gonna you're gonna correct me in one second um it, i i would guess for zaha hadid that there is just so much familiarity with high-end digital design tools that all creativity is kind of filtered through that competency and through that lens right um but that may not be the case for other offices, including yours, Mark, or yours, Jonas. And so the question I'm asking is for digital design practice in general, uh, for design practice in general, and particularly for your offices, is it is it becoming the case that the digital tools are, as it were, bringing forth a new dimension or a new sort of phase of creativity, or is the creative phase, as it were, sequentially before the deployment of digital tools? Does that question make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's both. Shaja, maybe you maybe you start with that one. Yeah, no, definitely. I think I mean that's what I intended to say when I said like the company is digitally native in the sense that our design conception is is you know parametric or computational 
to to the extent that like it is based on uh, you know like the idea that medium is the message like like so uh, that yeah we uh, all our design sketches are within a digital environment there isn't like any other uh, mode of operation like uh, we don't even make like uh, physical models like uh, foam models clay models etc uh, and and of course, not to say that there isn't other aspects of architecture. Like there's obviously the social angle and programmatic angle and uh, things that might not be fully capturable in in a, in a parametric setup or even computation beyond the realm of computation. Let's say, in, uh, which are more the realm of social science, etc. Uh, but to the to the extent that design is uh, informed by uh, computational uh, medium like like we are digitally uh, native uh, for sure and then uh, uh, yeah so so it's not so much that like uh, you know there's creativity and then there's the application of the computer uh, or computational uh, technologies um, uh, like our our effort is actually to capture uh, 80% or kind of all downstream effects like early on in the design. Mm -hmm. So like to bring some amount of construction, some amount of uh, engineering, some amount of cost and economics into our Maya models, let's say, to, to put it crudely. Uh, mm -hmm. So while we are kind of sketching, like we have a decent idea of uh, downstream implication. And why do that? Well, because we believe like uh you know uh, like the pareto principle that most of the uh gains uh are made early on in the design um uh, when when you can wrap you know dramatically change uh uh the the, the nature of downstream optimization processes so um uh, so like whether it's sustainability or reduction of material or reduction of cost etc decisions that you make early on are going to have like the most uh, return um and so to be able to do that like we we believe in uh you know rapid iteration like a follow a kind of evolutionary model so we we want to support rapid iteration and uh design ideation phases and cycles that are very very quick so we don't care for accuracy we don't um as long as we're in the ballpark, uh, we, we, we always privilege speed. And that's why we always tend it to the computer graphics industry to look for physically plausible solutions, but not necessarily physically exact, right? Like, so, uh, so that's the, that's the kind of principle that we, that we follow in our, in our computational efforts. So for you, Mark, and for you, Jonas, what is the leadership status in terms of kind of design reflexes? Is it design skills first, then we'll find a way to kind of compute this or visualize this with computers, or is it computers right front and center in the in the ideation process? Ah, it, I would just say um, it all. <laughs> we would be architects if we didn't start with ideation. Uh, honestly, we would be like. We would be we would be robots. Um, so I mean, to a certain degree, obviously, at all, I, I know where you're going. Like I know what you're getting at with that question. Um, I would say that very much in line, actually, with what Shadri was just saying. 
in the sense that, um, you know, for us, it, it, it's about the, the creative solution to the problem. Um, but at the same time, it's actually very, very important for us for uh, very similarly to, you know, uh, how Shaji mentioned about things like optimization of material. Um, we want to know very early on, too, if things are going to leak or not. Like, you know, and we, we may uh, we may become a little bit more obsessive over the accuracy, um, to be quite honest. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Um, we probably may have a reputation in that regard in the industry. But I think one of the things that, you know, like we're trying to do best is build like well-performing, comprehensive, comprehensively functional um, buildings for the client, right? So we may take a slightly different perspective. That doesn't mean that, you know, um, the computer drives the solution. Um, it's definitely a part of that. Um, but, uh, I would say that it's, it's less, um, so media, media and arts or media and entertainment rather, um, applications are, are not, uh, like, I guess the starting point for us, that's more of like a rhino grasshopper sort of thing for us. Um, and it's not just for like, you know, the efficiency of, um, you know, converting to any other format. It's just, that's what seems to be most comfortable for us in terms of exploring design space. And you, Jonas? Yeah, I would say in, um, in basically all our projects, the, the digital is in there from the beginning, but at different uh, levels of complexity. Uh, I think in the, in the very early stages and quite general projects that are not necessarily uh, the more advanced projects we have. We still, for instance, include uh, sets of simulations and uh, analysis in terms of sustainability, um, daylight yeah. and other things. So that's yeah. that's already fully integrated in the workflow. And then if the, the lead designers are actively engaged in in uh, using those toolkits in their design, but that's that's different uh, between people. Uh, but I think when uh, in those stages also physical models are still quite important for us and they become even more important once we become more digital in terms of mm. all the you know all the usual workshop machines, laser catchers, mm-hmm. three printers, etc. Uh, et mm. But it's mm. um, it's there. Um, I mean, so 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 where I am going with this, I mean, I'm, and I'll sort of park it and then and then translate it into into, into a kind of into another into a, into a related question. I mean, you know, so if you look at architects that love fetishizing um, the the act of architecture, all right, they, they they will claim that the act of ideation is one that is very somehow organic and and kind of innate and just very kind of you know, um, walk in the park stuff. And so let's take, I mean, t- just to kind of, you know, it, it may be slightly ridiculous, but a guy like Leon Creer, right? It's a very ideological architect. And he'll basically say, sit down with a pencil and a set square mm-hmm. and, you know, your knowledge of, you know, three-point perspective and you're off to the races. That's architecture, that's ideation, right? Now, I, I think that what's happening is that is that people are becoming native with digital tools. And historically, the pencil is just an analog drawing computer in the way that an abacus is an analog counting computer, right? And it it doesn't make any sense to use an abacus to 
somehow be more organic about accounting. I mean, this you know, is not how things done. You'll jump straight into Excel, or you know, you'll do you know mental arithmetic to me what you need to do. I mean, the the, the the point I'm making is that is that tools I think update with the time, and I feel certainly for myself having to come into architecture late that it's it's far more natural to me to think. I mean, just up until very recently, okay. I'm going to start clicking around and creating a polyline and doing some extrusions. And now I'm thinking, why am I not starting with code? Right? That's it's silly not to have a parametrized model out of the gates. Yeah. And the idea that I'd sit down with a pencil is annoying to me because I know that whatever I would draw, I cannot visualize or manipulate, not just in in 3D and some you know in some visualization environment. I just cannot control the parameters or the variables of the of the drawing or the model in a way. In, in, a, in a way that's powerful enough, quickly enough. And I just will find it an anachron like an abacus. It's just an anachronism. It's not that it's, it doesn't have its place, but it just doesn't do what I expect it to do. And this is the basis of ideation. And so, I mean, so now I'll translate that into a, into a, into a question. Do you think that the expectations of, of the role of digital tooling in um, architecture and built design are changing at the education level? Right. I hear what you say, Mark, about you know ideation being first. But would do you think that students coming through have a more aggressive, or, or even just a more naturalized a kind of you know, sort of baseline assumption that ideation is opening Rhino or opening you know a scripting environment? So, or do you think we're not in that space? No, I, I, I'm just gonna I, I'm gonna jump in here, and you guys can jump in after because I literally just before this call was speaking to a student that was asking me questions on this very subject. And I, and I guess we we're all like educators in some way, shape or form or another. Um, so I would say that, um, design is a team sport. Uh, we sit down at a table and, you know, we're going through, you know, like air quotes, ideation, we've got them all in the room. Right. Um, I mean, this is pre COVID let's say <laughs> now nobody's in a room, but we're in like digital rooms. Um, People are drawing ideas on boards. Some people are sitting at that table, modeling grasshopper scripts, uh, exploring variations of what's happening with somebody's hand, right? So, I mean, I, I, I always think of it as like a team sport. So I think the short answer for me is it's like, really, it's actually both things. But pulling that back to education is that, um, this is like partially opinion, but also driven by like, you know, what I've observed is that there is a kind of depending upon where you're going to school and what kind of school um there's a real kind of desire actually to jump right into bim like you're saying john um personally i feel sometimes that's a bit of a mistake because if you're kind of fundamentally understanding like how to deploy a concept and conceptually conceive of something and support that you know with philosophical and driven parameter like reasoning as to why that thing needs to exist. It's a bit cumbersome to start thinking about like wall composition and things like this. Like if I'm talking about a BIM tool, right? Uh, you kind of want to more think about things from a more conceptual process, step back, and then maybe lean into that after. And so what I'm, you know, like to answer your question, what I mostly see, mostly, um, I'm going to say like, if I'm looking at 85, 15% sort of thing, cause I teach at various different academic institutions is that in some cases you get like the Revit stream. Right. And I actually do, I actually do see tangible differences in the quality of work and the kind of work that comes from starting with something like that first relative to say, um, I would say the majority of, uh, where students are saying, but this is both digital, right. Craft. 
uh, is coming from sort of more of like a rhino grasshopper or freeform modeling, whether it's like SketchUp or something that is like the digital analog, like as you say, to the physical analog equivalent um, has been my experience in the past. And, and, and that is absolutely like the norm, uh, I would yeah. say now. Mm-hmm. What what do you what do you feel, Jonas, with students coming through? Are they are they, are they would they would they say that I, if you ask them, would they say their ideation starts with a, a, a coding script or 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 a digital environment, or would you say it starts with a piece of paper? I mean, I think it's it's a question I don't think so much about anymore, and I think that's because it's it's all of these things uh, and. Uh, I mean, to be to be digital, to working models from day one, that's that's obvious uh, among I think all my students. To be scripting or programming, that's not obvious to everyone. Uh, okay. Uh, that's. Uh, uh, I mean, it's. I I do have students now that I only realize after like two months that I've actually been scripting the whole thing. So mm-hmm. to certain people, it's it's so naturalized that they don't even talk about it. Uh, of course, so there there is a shift definitely, um, and then I do also think that it's very different at different universities. I mean, I happen to be at uh, Chalmers in Gothenburg. Uh, there is an architecture and engineering bachelor program uh, where people come in not only knowing software but actually knowing structure uh, in the, in their masters uh, years, yeah. which yeah. kind of influences the school. So the level of uh, understanding in terms of design is is quite high actually um, for a Swedish university, and, uh, and many of them work uh, go and work abroad. Um, I think there's been interns at HOK, uh, Peter Happold, uh, etc. So they they are very actively engaged in that sense. We did a smart well, I mean, so sorry. We did a smart say, so... through school. You know. <laughs> sorry, we did a smart geometry at your school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, so so part of our, our shared experience, Jonas, is, is that one of my ex students, uh, Vladimir Ondrasik, is um, uh, works for White and has been collaborating on on Space Engine, the the, the base two design optimization products. And um, uh, I always knew, you know, that he was the best, one of the best in the class at you know scripting, visual scripting, Rhino. But what I've learned is how, um, and this has been interesting to me, how he assumes that he needs to know basic he needs to be a competent software developer in general to be able to use um the the sort of computational layer of conventional architecture tools and that i think is an evolution that i've observed with interest right and actually it's inspired me i mean our our own platform product where i have to code some of it myself has helped me but also vladimir has kind of basically made me realize wow i've got to be able to code correctly at least to some degree to be able to keep up um and i found that very interesting how, how is it for you Shaji? i mean i think i have some sense of the answer but for for students um coming through i, I or do you feel that let me reframe the question this way do you feel that you get the ones that are particularly native to digital ideation or is it becoming universal across the, the you know the architectural education um I think it is becoming quite universal because not just at the AA, because like we do workshops uh, and like travel lectures, etc., in uh, places as varied as India, China, Mexico, um, United States, etc. Like um, 
and I think like it's it's more like the Andy Clark idea of natural born cyborgs, right? Like like the computer is a natural augmentation of our of our uh, human capacities, right? Like so so that that means like whether it is sketching, like uh, what is traditionally called ideation, uh, it can also be computationally augmented. Uh, whether it is like design, parametric design, uh, you know, you could uh, augment it with like writing your own code and like knowing the mathematics of it, uh, whether you use like Dynamo or Grasshopper, like if you know the underlying uh, some amount of the math, like, you know, it's only going to make it better. Uh, so, you know, that, that reminds me of something like what uh, Richard Feynman said, like, just because you understand biology, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, like, just because you understand uh, the, the how a rose works, like, it doesn't undermine your appreciation of it. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's something similar, like, uh, that, like, computational and the digital is augmenting our natural human capacities, like, like, like the internet is, is like a thousand eyes in the sky, like that, um, and or our phone, like, you know, we no longer remember phone numbers. Uh, so it's a it's a similar thing uh, when it comes to design, and I think like uh, uh, the business model of the company like kind of uh, also uh, determines how we use uh, technology. Like because like we as a company like a large part of our acquisition is through competitions. Like we have to win competitions to keep our company going. Like so we have very very fast ideation sketching uh natively in in a 3d software because we uh, you know we we have to uh, we have uh you know several competitions going at the same time and at any given time uh mm. so uh, and when it comes to design like you know uh, whatever has been acquired whatever has been won like we have to now deliver it design and deliver it like then like we get more uh, parametric or more um, script driven. Uh, so I think like, yeah, like it's, it's, it's not necessary. It's not only uh, in, in that we attract like these people, but uh, I believe that like, uh, uh, even, even in places as far as India, like they're looking to leapfrog uh, places in Europe. Like, so, you know, they're, they're all, diving into this kind of digital nativeness because they, they yeah. see, you know, our biggest competitors are in China, like, uh, like small firms or like, like we always worry about small firms because like, you know, they can be so much more agile, like, and yeah. So I would say, yeah, yeah that's, that's definitely, uh, ac across the board. So let's start rounding up with a couple, couple, couple more questions. So, I mean, you're moving that direction with what you're showing right now, Shaja. But how much of the, how much of digital design practice is led by client interest? And I mean that on on at least two levels. Do they expect? I mean, you touched on it actually a little bit before in terms of, um, you know, what you see is what you get, Shaja. But 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 I mean, maybe broaden on that point. And so we'll start with you. What do clients expect? just in general that you show them shiny things that they can sense are produced by the latest tools. And then that, they, to extend that question, do they have any sense of specific tools they should expect you to be using? Are they either explicitly or implicitly wanting to use certain tools? 
right? So what I'm really saying is, 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 is evolution in digital design, is it driven by client interests explicitly or implicitly? Maybe start with you, Shajay. I think implicitly, yes, uh, to the extent that, you know, most, most clients want to things like, we need to drive up the market value of their of their building and drive down the production cost, right? Like so, and and whatever technology and tools that we use to do that, like uh, they don't really care. So it's it's kind of in, implicit in in that sense. And only some of our North American clients make explicit uh, requirements to use uh, buzzwords like generative uh, design, etc. Like so, seems seems uh, you know uh, that's more marketing driven. Uh, but but for the most part, I think it's implicit, um, and and uh, uh, you know comp- because we get a lot a lot of our clients through winning competitions, uh, there is uh, our use of technology is driven by that uh, initial thing that I mentioned. What you see is what you get. Like we need to, we are making a promise during competition phase, and if we don't deliver on that, like after winning like we won't win anymore and um so that's that's the i think like our our investments in technology is driven by that that we want to deliver uh, we want to make a promise of uh, performance uh, and then we want to deliver on that like and and performance is not only physical performance whether uh, sustainability or uh, comfort etc but also uh, social performance that a large number of end users are happy in our spaces, uh, which ultimately benefit the client, and therefore, like the market value of of the building goes up. Um, so yeah, so we we want to make our, our yeah technology is in that sense like for us subsidy uh, uh, serving serving the end user experience, uh, like ultimately like one way or the other. Uh, our investments are always geared towards uh, improving uh, end user experience at uh, whilst operating within the constraints of uh, budget and and uh, and, and uh, physical uh, viability. Yeah. Mm. And for you, Jonas, how much of how much of the how much of White's output is how much of how much White's client base client base is expecting or interested in the digital tooling layer itself? Uh, I mean, on the client side, I'd say there, there's two areas primarily where this is happening. One is uh, urban uh, development, um, where we actually have demands on on uh, analysis and simulation, um, even for housing projects um, at the early stage, um, and they are even uh, asking for uh, information on how. Uh, these simulations have been made, uh, so comparable data uh, and so on. So I think uh, to inform the projects at early stage becomes more and more important. And then at the other end of the well of the process, at least um, in terms of using models uh, for uh, the management of buildings, digital twins is you know that other buzzword. Uh, which is uh, growing uh, more and more. So, but otherwise, I think I mean our clients are uh, in- interested in in good and cost efficient design, which is probably the same thing as JJ is saying. Although we're not profiled in 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 in, in 
we profiled in a completely different way, but it's still the same aspects. And uh, another important factor with white architecture is that it's in a multidisciplinary. So we do have teams working uh, with the sustainability issues at many levels, not only sort of the ones normally associated to, well, to geometry and materials and things like that. Yeah. Mark. Um, yes, is the short answer. Well, it depends, kind of. Um, I think the short answer is yes, mostly. Uh, same, same, similarly to Jonas's point is that, you know, um, in, in uh, well, I'll speak like it depends like on continent too, right? So uh, customers in Europe are less, uh, for the most part, are less, um, let's say, dead set on a specific buzzword or tool more focused on outcome. Uh, mm-hmm. I found, uh, or I find generally in North America, because there are especially specifically like US centric standards to energy conservation uh, and 2030 targets, there's like an actual online rigid submission process. Similarly in say Canada, where I'm uh, geolocated, um, you know, in major cities, like let's say Vancouver, Toronto, um, there's a very strict compliance process. So when you're using something like IESVE or some similar type of compliance modeling software, there are like a very rigid set of standards that need to be adhered to when you submit when you submit content for review and analysis by uh, the uh, jurisdiction holding authority. Um, from the other bit of perspective, like stepping away from sustainability for a bit and just talking about like sheer modeling, I've actually, I'm going to say not an epidemic, but it's becoming concerning to me that when we um, uh, are working with institutional clients, like um, I'll say government, government mostly, um, and that sort of thing, they're, they're um, oddly specifying even the platform (laughs) they think we should use to model on, which is like, I kind of wonder what's happening there. Right. Uh, you know, are these people attending Autodesk conferences or what have you or something like that? And they're listening to what's being said and they're seeing that as kind of the be all and end all to the solution and then thereby inserting that in their contract documentation. Mm, I don't know, like for me, that seeing that sort of thing, and I've seen it, you know, a few times now, um, is becoming a bit problematic, I would say. I think Again, I think it should be more of the kind of European mentality that I've experienced anyway, in that it's more about outcome, not necessarily exactly what's being used to get there. And and to kind of dovetail this back to one of our earlier conversations about open standards is it's all a moot point if that's what your end goal is and what the output yeah. is, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's 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 been kind of my experience. I mean, I, so on, on on some of those points, I mean, I I think that there are growing client expectations in terms of um, in terms of sort of finish of of the of the output, and so I I can well imagine that real time render stuff like Unreal Engine and related you know, similar products will be useful because the client will say, can we can we can we look at this? So so it's it's starting to replace the physical model, right. uh, but adding more power to it, right? So we'll look at the model from a different perspective. We'll start, you know, you know, we'll start looking at different. So essentially, what the the volumetric optimizing people got, you know, like SpaceMaker does, like like block level volumetric optimizations from an engineering perspective, but then ups up, upgrading that to a full 
complete model and rendered model, but with the same optimizations being explored. And I think that that, those kinds of expectations on the client side will evolve. But I think what will end up happening is that just doing that as a kind of surface proposition where you cannot drill into the actual design and cost and technical implications of it will end up being a dead end, right? So unless you've built these sophisticated stacks, just showing clever things, I think will, will not be a sustainable um, sort of driver of engagement on the client side because their curiosity will in the end collapse. You cannot tell them what's good or bad about these alternatives. I also think that you know your point, Jonas, is actually one of the most powerful aspects of interest on the client side. And I think this is going to be particularly influential, which is clients' interest in terms of the operational potential of the technology, right? So it's not just the, you know, the design potential, whether from a kind of cost or aesthetic or some other perspectives, but um, it's actually, you know, what does the technical choices uh, during the digital design phase mean for operations? But also then the same question in reverse, if this get this gets particularly interesting and certainly overlaps with the last meter model, if the real estate company is choosing a, a set of technologies, how do they interplay with the design models and, sort of technical handover so whatever technology or models you hand over to the operations phase is do they interact and so for example you know, there's, there's a project that we're discussing right now in i mean mo- most of our projects like this but one project we're discussing with a, a co-working um it's, it's kind of co-working stroke hotel project and they're saying to us look we would like to integrate services we'd like you to help us design the whole project around these services what technology do we choose to make sure that whatever you do now works whatever we choose so they're looking at you know fnb food systems and hotel booking systems and access systems and i think that's going to be an emerging an emerging issue which is that if you're designing a building are you specifying a certain you know technology stack as something or, or, or technology for information around just the data of the building um, that can be deployed in relation to the technologies, in, in integration with the technologies that the operators know they're going to use. And that, I think, is emerging more and more because these these new kind of programmatic layers and the technologies that they imply are, um, you know, pretty explicit. I mean, so, in, I mean, I'm not experienced here, but I sense there's some overlap here, for example, in, let's say, the theater space, right? If you have a large opera house, right? The interplay between the technologies for, you know, lighting and stage and sound um, I'm probably going to interplay with the design. And if that is something that plays nice at the design technology phase, so much the better. But so I think that, you know, those things are going to evolve in the client side is, is particularly interesting. One, one last question before we, before, we, before we round off. I mean, I, do you think that digital design tools are going to facilitate sustainability and social practice by integrating them so that they become standard? Or will it will they facilitate it by making them more prominent as issues to engage with, or will they not do either? Well, <laughs> could you clarify that? Yeah. Uh, well, it's it is Friday I mean, what, evening, so I. I... Okay. What, what I what I mean by that is that is that if you open a standard design a design tool, all right. There's a way in which you could say, okay, um, let's design on the basis that this building has certain sustainability performance characteristics, which takes the issue away from you. There's another way of doing it that says, here are the issues you should think about. Let's keep them up and both in mind, right? So the digital tooling can either make sustainability a background factor or a foreground factor, or it might just not. They might it might not facilitate sustainability or other social issues at all. What, do you think which of those three pathways do you see emerging, or maybe all of them? Uh, all of them. 
I'll say. Um, they're, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I do have, a, I do have a, a follow-up question, by the way. So I'm, I'm asking this in a mildly disingenuous way. But, but, so you're, you may walk into a trap, but carry on. Okay. So, uh, no, no, I, I, I'll say that. Um, so so we, we, we develop like specific scripts that can be reused to essentially um, to, to, to basically um, resolve or measure, let's say, uh, design decisions based on some of those uh, elements very early on in the process, right? I think this has come up actually a couple times. Jonas even mentioned it as well, right? Um, is that, you know, you're going to do things like... Uh, I guess if you're talking about social stuff, you know, like uh, the overall building's performance, it's uh, GHG impacts, um, but also things like circadian lighting or, or lighting uh, optimization, uh, passive versus active cooling and heating um, technologies or strategies like these are and the envelope may be designed in essence to reflect that, right? Like operable windows versus, uh, you know, me mechanically or manually versus uh, strictly forced air systems. Um, I guess these are these are all considerations that we take very seriously up front. I don't think any firm can avoid that now, even if you're doing like multi-unit residential, um, a or sorry, rather commercial may be the last stranglehold. I don't know. Maybe it's different in Europe, but uh, or it is actually, as I'm aware. Um, but there's um, these are these are legislative we don't have options anymore. So, uh, you know, maybe more so in the U S you might have some more, but certainly in Canada, we really don't have options because it's like legislated that we have to consider some of these things up front, right? They're, they're part of the, they're partially accepted by society or mostly accepted by society. And they're just, they're inherently part of the, they've become part of the design process. Um, so you can't separate the two now. It's actually, it becomes part of your toolkit that you develop for to consider and evaluate for these things very early on. And how is it for you, Shojay? Yeah, I think it is more uh, a kind of sustainability as or as a bundled physical performance uh, set of measures and metrics and uh, constraints. Uh, so, in that sense, for us, digitization is is a is a way to address those things uh, as necessary substrates. Uh, uh, on which to build, uh, you know, the product uh, or to build the experience, uh, the storytelling, etc. Like so, which is still, which is still our foreground activity, the thing that we are most focused on, uh, which a lot of our clients uh, uh, come to us for, or or in a way that's how we win our uh, work. Um, so not to say that none of the uh, the physical aspects are uh, important. They are very much important, like that, like they, but like we always see it as a layer on which to build, uh, build this, uh, build the user experience on, and and build the other social aspects on, like you know integration yeah. with uh, ideas of placemaking, uh, you know, or contextual integration not not so much as the architectural language but like you know how uh, circulation can be integrated with uh, yeah, with with the surrounding context or even how like our buildings can improve urban you know uh, value uh, all, all of these aspects like we are build, building 
on top of the physical uh, layer and the physical substrate, so to speak. And and so, yeah, digitization definitely helps, uh, you know, make make it tangible that we can actually build all of these. Uh, we can focus on on these essential aspects uh, mm. uh, <clears throat> by pushing the performance, the physical performance, uh, to to um, uh, to uh, as as a very important substrate, but like to to as a background activity. And, you know, um, it's a it's a bit like uh, yeah, storytelling is equally important for. Uh, or the narrative aspects and the placemaking uh, aspects. And ultimately, it's all about user experience. Uh, and maybe even there, like physical building ergonomics plays a role uh, in, oh, yeah. in ensuring user comfort, but that's not the end all of it. Like the, the ultimate goal is, is uh, yeah, perhaps Vitruvian in that sense, you know, delight. <laughs> Jonas. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree, uh, and also with with Mark initially that um, we see many cases, for instance, even in competitions, that you do have to submit the model uh, according to certain principles to be analyzed, or you have to submit uh, uh, your own analysis in in specific formats. I think uh, going back to a previous note, there what we're working hard for is to not let that dictate how we design, uh, but actually be being able to have this ecosystem to not, uh, uh, I mean, if, if they want to have a Revit model, they can get one, but we maybe didn't do it in Revit, uh, yeah. for instance, uh, and similar things uh, like that. But I think um, there are also obviously other sites which do not deal with, with the, uh, let's say, how that doesn't have a direct relation to the geometrical aspects of design uh agree also with uh Shai Shai there on on all those qualities are are that's that's still what wins a competition and what's what is the main delivery um but also in terms of sustainability there there are of course other aspects that are not integrated today in this um mm -hmm. sort of the digital process and some of it you know uh can maybe be integrated but in a completely different way i mean social yeah. sustain uh, sustainability for instance is something that's very important for us so you, so you have fallen a little bit into my trap right and the trap is this right so if we take the service and synthesize what you what you said into kind of two narratives one is that sustainability is increasingly becoming a kind of regulated or, or, or mandated baseline in projects. And in, in your case, Charger, it's becoming a kind of technical baseline that is assumed and is, is baked in, and then you get on with the storytelling. Now, the reason why this is a trap is because my experience, having kind of come through into this space as a kind of you know a sustainable architecture and, and built environment like specialist, that's how I came into the profession and the process I worked on. What I detected was that and the, way, the way I describe it is that the baseline performance was stabilizing at the wrong level, right? So, if, for example, a you know a national administration or city administration puts into building code that everyone should have lead silver, <laughs> right? Well, lead silver is useless; it doesn't achieve anything. And then, actually, over the life of the building, it might achieve less than not doing it at all. Some of the research suggests that. And so, there's a real danger in kind of going for the baseline and saying, "Well, that's what's mandated." Is that the agency of architects to engage with the issue is 
is is obviated. I'll do what I'm told to do, and if that's wrong, it's not my fault. And so that that does worry me. I'm not I'm not blaming you, Mark, and I'm sorry for 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 hatching a trap on you because I understand exactly what you're saying, which is in one way it is good that these things are mandated and become you know they're no longer optional. On the other side, I think, and this is for me in a way a more important one. If the sustainability issue is not animated into the story, isn't part of the value proposition of the building, I don't think society is moving in the right direction. And I'll see. I mean, I, I'm not, I'll, I'll give you guys the last word, but just to kind of park the the technical conversation on this. Um, one of the problems we're confronting right now is that we do not have the transition pathways ahead of us that are accelerating away from you know carbon intensity fast enough. Right. So if what we end up doing is just going for mandated baselines or removing the kind of transition story away from high carbon, intensive carbon society from the narrative of particularly premium buildings like marquee buildings like of the sort that you know Zaha is producing, I think we're actually moving into a dangerous place because we actually need to bring everything to the table, all the storytelling capability of architecture to say to us to say to reflect back to a society that it has to change certain things, but to do so in a way that adds value, that adds right to use your Vitruvian concept. Uh, delights, right? That is where the sustainability movement needs the architects, right? And it's partly why I work in this space to try and kind of bridge the gap. We need to make sustainability a value proposition, not just a technical proposition, because partly on a technical level, we're not doing enough. Even if we are sort of generally moving in the right direction, we need massively more motivation to go through the significant transformation. So one reason why, you know, why, why I started the company Base2 is because I, I just had this intuition that was becoming more and more technically explicit that unless we make sustainable living a, a splendid proposition in architecture and lifestyle terms, we aren't going to get there. And so I, I'm happy to hear that you think it's baked in in mandated terms increasingly and that it's definitely part of your kind of you know operational workflow Shaji. but i also worry that you know the agency and the animation capability of architects is being missed in terms of engaging with these issues but i'll park that piece of the conversation there i don't mean to criticize you i'm just sort of you, you know was using your inputs as a way to kind of frame some extra thoughts but I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this right in if you have if you read ahead in the next five or ten years you talk in terms of you know whether it's a kind of dream scenario of what you'd like or just a kind of prediction for what's going to cash out, how do you think that uh, architecture offices will be um, affected most by the, by the evolution of digital design? Will the business model change? Will the client base change? Will the, you know, the kind of programming, the type of buildings that are built change? Where will be the big impact of digital design in the next five or 10 years of architecture due to digital design tooling? So can I, I just want to, I want to address two of those points, I want to say, John, that it's only a trap if you allow those mandates and guidelines. It was totally unfair. I'm so sorry. It no, was no, no, totally no, no. unfair. It's, it, I knew what you guys were going to say. I knew what I was going to say, but carry on. No, no, but it's, it's only a trap if you allow that to dictate your design process and how, how you respond, right? You know, like, it's like anything, right? The data is the data. Um, you're going to have to make concessions. You can't, you can't, you can't honor every single criteria. You have to pick and choose what makes the most sense for that problem, right? So I just wanted to add that. But also, on the other hand, to your last question, is one hell of a doozy, and I absolutely love that question because if we think about architecture as, and this may be like maybe everyone will disagree with me and think this is like way too out there, Mark, you're nuts. Let's think of architecture as more than the physical realm, right? 
Um, you know, architecture can exist virtually as well, um, believe it or not. I mean, we did talk and touch on bits of this conversation with like game engines and things like that. So there's no reason why you couldn't conceive of something that is traditionally a physical thing as a virtual thing and it still be an architecture, quote unquote, especially since far fewer people are actually going to physical buildings <laughs> due to the current circumstances around the world. That said, I think fundamentally, um, if we look at like digital practice long term, I think you're going to get a kind of, not a diversion, but it's going to seem like a diversion at first. It's going to travel in two different parallels and then it's going to reconverge at some point. And I think what that, that, that uh, diversion is, is the development of, again, what I kind of call like the virtual, virtual architecture and, and, and uh, real architecture. Um, and the pro process is going to fundamentally change how we kind of develop and document buildings. I think currently they're, they're, it's due. I mean, it's been a while. Um, and then that reconvergence is going to be the assimilation of those two things. So like the idea or the concept of overlaying stuff that doesn't exist in the real world with the real world and actually designing for that. Um, you know, we were talking about five years, 10 years out at one point, Shadji was saying some of the things they were looking at, like, these are some of the real things that we're looking at and investigating. And I, I truly actually fundamentally believe that, um, you know, because of, you know, let's face it, like the world will never be the same, right? So the numbers and the levels of occupancy that were once had are probably, it's going to take a, a while to get back there and B, we may never be back there, right? So um, we got to think of other ways of communicating and integrating that social aspect. And I truly believe that one of those ways is going to be um, not just designing physical spaces, which is a fundamental shift from the way that we do things now. And also when we do do that, it's going to actually have uh, severe impacts on how we do things the way we do them now. So that would mm. just be my, I mean, that's maybe crazy talk, but that's how I feel <laughs> the situation. Right. Jonas. Jonas. Yes. Sorry. Um, Hi, no worries. I'm, I'm on. Yeah. I mean, I think that the most important thing that uh, will happen, I, I don't think actually I'm so keen on talking about it from the sort of digital design tooling perspective, and maybe not even from the digitalization perspective. I think what's super important is that we need to be able to move fast. Uh, that's not only architects, of course, but we have to adapt to new conditions given. And I think the digital is one aspect of that. I mean, the current... Uh, Pandemic is, is just one aspect. We know that there are other very critical perspectives that we have to uh, respond to. Um, and we need to do that by constantly evolving uh, and uh, improving the way we work. Uh, one, one, one example is, for instance, timber. Uh, in Sweden, which is a timber-rich nation, um, uh, there's been, a, by, by many actors, a, a a constant struggle to to increase the number of uh, timber buildings because obviously that's good from a sustainability perspective but there's now the flip side of that that the ecosystems in the forests are uh, extremely uh, sensitive to this uh, so we that's just an example where the the simple answer is not really the best answer always so 
there's a much more complex picture behind that that we need to be to know more about and that's of course yeah. goes for all of society well conveniently uh so i started another podcast series about sustainable uh, environmental science and design and there's an episode which will be posted into this talk series on timber design so <laughs> there's much lots more content there to to share so um can, can I just, oh, sorry uh, can i just add one thing to that john i just wanted to say that yeah. also you know with the hyperinflation that's occurring right now around timber um oh you know, all of a sudden the cost of making the socially responsible choice has skyrocketed relative to, you know, it's, it's less conscious uh, equivalent. So anyway. Sure. Sure, Jay. Um, yeah, like, I think like the thing that like we are generally very excited about is, 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 uh, you know, something that Mark initially uh, touched upon, like this idea that uh, architecture uh, will be, like for sure, it will be cyber physical, right? Like it is not, like the digital is not only for planning, it is going to be, uh, and then like once it's physically realized, you forget about the digital model uh in in two ways both from the digital twin idea that it is going to be useful in the operational of the real physical building but increasingly what we are most excited by is ideas of the metaverse and like how gaming technology is really transforming the experience of the building even before it is built so and also gaming technologies that are allowing you know anticipating built environment ahead of its uh, physical realization uh so uh that's uh, that's what we are focused on like you know um where uh, uh like and 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 you should probably see something come out uh, from our offices on 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 that in in the in the near future but like we we believe, believe that in in the next 5 years or 10 years uh this is going to be uh, part of every 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 client's expectation that like you you will first fully forecast and simulate and rehearse uh, mm-hmm. the, the the physical building before it is physically realized like you, you're gonna do it virtually and as realistically as possible like and some of that is already being seen in like the hyper realistic renders that are uh, increasingly being produced like uh, by all offices uh that is only going to keep extending further and further it's going to become realistic animation it's going to become realistic 3d uh environments and walkthroughs and then you let you will start seeing like building economics building physics everything being integrated uh in in the forecasting and and so we are, we are kind of very ex- keenly looking forward to that uh idea that like uh the buildings will be experienced uh cyber first and physical next uh, so yeah that's that's uh that's what we we look forward to uh and and that will will genuinely lead to better resource utilization we believe that uh because the more it is utilized and trial and error is simulated on online uh including user preferences and and user experiences uh, so the multi-objective optimization happens uh, in a simulated environment with users, uh, and 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 then like the physical synchronization comes uh, like after. Uh, so yeah, I, so we look forward to that. 
I, I, I agree with that very much. I think I think one dimension of that is that is that partly what you were implying, Jonas, is that the um, uh, the operational phase uh, kind of starts blending with the design phase in in, in digital terms, mm -hmm. right? What you're what you're designing is is a building through many stages of operational life, and actually, in principle, the same tools are used, or at least the same sort of tooling basis is used for operations, support, and optimization. I think that adds another layer, which is, um, and, I, and, I, and I'm sure that all of your respective offices are thinking about it, and it's something that we're we're trying to we're trying to straddle the gap, which is designing for a for a service facilitation or support layer that you yourself continue to to, to add, right? We we contribute design through a thing called space engine and contribute to operations through a thing called last meter and some things built on top of it. And I and I'm I, I know from one of the offices in this conversation which I shan't mention because it's not public yet, but um, uh, that that you're that you're thinking through what live services can you offer, whether it's a kind of you know as simple as an interior decorating ongoing service or it's some branding proposition or it's some partnering and activity proposition. Uh, I'm sure that that will actually sit very nicely inside these, you know, more expansive and more powerful and more dynamic um, digital tool uh, spaces that you're describing, Charge. Well, I think that was fantastic. I mean, I, I'm so grateful that you, you took so much time. I think we covered a lot of ground. Um, what's exciting about this, obviously, is that no matter how much is going on, it still feels like it's all just beginning. So it's great to be to be part of it and to be hearing your perspective on it. So m many years may you reign, and let's do this again soon. Looking forward to, to keeping in touch. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks, John. Thanks, everyone. Yes, yeah, thank, thank, you. thank you very much, uh, Shaji and Jonas. That was a enlightening and inspiring conversation. Thanks very much, John, for setting it up.